invite you to open up a copy of the Bible and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 14. Uh, We're continuing uh, in our series through the book of Deuteronomy, working through it uh, chapter by chapter uh, to see how all of God's word is good and profitable for God's people and how it all teaches us the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and I trust we'll see that today as uh, we look at Deuteronomy 23, which has to do with the sacred assembly of God's people. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 verses 1 through 14, let's give our attention to the reading and hearing of God's word. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way, When you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them, and the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. The word of the Lord. Well, modern life as we know it, whether we know it or not, depends upon the existence of clean rooms. You heard about these? Do you know what clean room is? They're used in the development of technologies that we depend upon every day. Things like aerospace technology, computer technology, and so on. Because a single dust particle, if it were to get in one of these devices, could prove destructive. The physical purity of clean rooms is essential to what makes our life go around day by day. In fact, if it were not for the existence of clean rooms, we wouldn't have smartphones. 
can you imagine it? Some of us are more attached to and dependent upon our smartphones than we care to admit. Or maybe it's some other electronic device. But the reality is, without these clean rooms, these devices simply wouldn't exist. And so while many people today are are perplexed or even disturbed by these ancient purity laws that we find in the Old Testament, it's at least worth noticing as we get started that even in our world, we are forced to recognize that a certain kind of purity remains essential to life, essential to life as we know it. And I want to suggest that there is a moral and spiritual analogy that corresponds to this physical reality of clean rooms. Hebrews 12:14 says, "Without holiness, no one will see the Lord." Without in mind, I want us to consider the passage before us today. It breaks down pretty clearly into two sections. First, the holy assembly in verses 1 through 8, and then secondly, the holy camp in verses 9 through 14. We're coming to the end of a section which is loosely related to the seventh commandment forbidding adultery. These verses expand on the general themes of fidelity, purity, sanctity, not only by calling Israelites to be set apart from other nations surrounding them that might uh, tempt them Uh, to idolatry, which they might intermarry with and be led astray, but also by demanding that every individual included within the assembly of the Lord must be pure, must be holy, must be unmixed in devotion to the Lord God. So these rules are teaching us what is required in the language of Psalm 24, to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. The word assembly is really important in this opening section, isn't it? The word assembly in the Old Testament refers to when Israel was gathered for official times of worship and the annual festivals that we have already looked at in the book of Deuteronomy. Assembly is also used to describe Uh, the people of Israel, when they were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai to receive the law and to enjoy the Lord's presence. And so assembly refers to the covenant people of God gathered for worship in the presence of the Lord. And the relevance of this for us, I think, stands out when we we notice that the Greek uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, When it translates this Hebrew word for assembly, it uses the word ekklesia, which is the word for church. So we get a sense of what the demands of God are in this passage for the church, for the gathered assembly of God's people. And in order to uphold the integrity of the sacred assembly, God establishes raises up certain barriers, certain filters, which exclude various groups from entering the assembly based upon the holiness of God. It begins, let's, let's look at these 
various restrictions, beginning in verse 1. No emasculated males permitted in liturgical worship of God's people. Verse 1 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, this rule, I think it's important to understand, is not intended to exclude those whose emasculation is the result of illness or injury. But rather, rather, as I, I, I think it's, we'll see this a little bit later in Isaiah 56, the issue here is not physical disfigurement per se. Rather, the, the direct concern is for what we might call the self-castrated, who bear in their own body the physical sign of their religious commitment to another god. Castration was a standard rite with many of the fertility cults which surrounded Israel at that time. It was a common practice among the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Canaanites more generally. So anyone bearing this religious sign in the flesh bore in their bodies a sign of idolatry, the sign of belonging to another. And so it is not those who are emasculated again for injury or illness, but those who have done this to themselves as a sign of their religious commitment to another God. But I think as we consider this, this first rule, it's important to see that the, the positive requirement that goes beyond the mere association with idols. Because the positive requirement implicit in this rule is uncompromised devotion. Wholehearted commitment, right? Who can stand in the midst of the assembly? The one who is wholeheartedly devoted to God and to God alone. That's God's standard for being a part of the heavenly assembly. Purity of heart and unmixed devotion to the truth. See, God's holiness demands perfection and nothing less than that. And even though these ceremonial requirements that we are looking at today, ceremonial requirements which have been torn down by the flesh of Christ, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but no longer binding. Nonetheless, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus insists, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's not Moses, that's Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. You must be perfect. Verse 2 forbids another group from the assembly. It says, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. This would appear to include people who were born out of wedlock, or as we saw last time, through incestuous relationships, or any other forbidden union that's listed in the book of Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 through 20. But I think most commentators that I have looked at on this passage are, are right when they, they say that the direct concern here, once again, 
are children born of cult prostitution. If you look down in this passage, verses 17 and 18, you'll see that cult prostitution remained a problem, even within Israel. And so the Lord tells them that the sons and daughters of Israel shall not be cult prostitutes. And that wages gained from cult prostitution could not be brought into the tabernacle or the temple, for such a thing was an abomination to the Lord. So once again, God is forbidding any evidence of impurity and idolatry in his holy presence. This time in the form of individuals born of cultic or forbidden unions. Verses 3 through 6 go on to exclude the Ammonites and Moabites from ever entering the assembly of the Lord. Now the reason for their exclusion is not based on ethnicity, but a failed hospitality and cursing. Cursing. Look at verse 4. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Failed hospitality and cursing. So let's just hit the pause button on running through this passage for a moment. Ask the question, how are these restrictions communicating to us underlying principles which remain in effect, which remain uh, important to the people of God today? I think that the exclusion of the self-emasculated and those born of forbidden unions shows us that perfect and pure devotion is necessary, is required to ever be in God's presence. And this third rule, excluding the Ammonites and Moabites, shows us that those who reject or curse God's covenant people will never enter the heavenly assembly. Remember the promise God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. God is fulfilling that promise here. Now, permanent exclusion might seem harsh for a lack of hospitality. But it's worth noticing the similarity between the penalty here and Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats along the lines of their treatment of those who are identified with the Lord himself. Jesus said, listen to these words, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, curse it, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. This is what the Lord is saying about the Ammonites and the Moabites here in Deuteronomy 23. He identifies with his people just as Jesus does here in this parable. Later on, uh, Jesus continues to say, Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal 
life. So blessing those who belong to God is part of the standard, part of the requirement, showing hospitality, loving and providing for them when they are in need. This is yet another feature of the flawless perfection that is required in order to stand in the midst of the assembly in God's holy dwelling place. So again, let's let's come back now and ask ourselves the question, what are these laws doing? What are they teaching us? What's What's the message? These symbolic exclusions are meant to teach us that no one measures up. These rules show us that none of us, by our own efforts, qualify ourselves to stand in the midst of the assembly. None of us measure up. None of us have what's required. Look at how God hammers this lesson home in the Old Testament. According to the prophets, Israel was guilty of mixed devotion, thinking that they could on the one hand serve the living and true God and on the other hand carve and fashion their own idols and bow down and serve them as they pleased. And in Isaiah 57, God's people are described as, listen to this, as the offspring of a forbidden union. Isaiah says you are all the offspring of an adulterer. The whole lot, all of them disqualified in one fell swoop. The entire assembly is disqualified. Everyone, according to the standards of Deuteronomy 23. You see, Isaiah, as a covenantal prosecutor, is telling the people of God, you don't measure up. So what hope then is there for people like us when the requirement for perfection has not been nullified, has not been been taken away or swept under the rug, what what are we going to (laughs) do? Well, friends, it's no accident that one of the earliest accounts of a Gentile coming to faith in Jesus is the account, get this, of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. This man was not only a foreigner, he had also been emasculated. He was doubly disqualified from being accepted as a member of the assembly of the Lord. And yet, according to Acts chapter 8, this foreign eunuch was accepted by God and he received the public sign and seal of belonging to God's people through the sign of baptism. How is that possible? You've got to ask the question, how does this, how does this work? While we're at it, how is it possible for a Moabite woman like Ruth to have an entire book of the Bible named after her? How does that, how does that work? And, and since the descendants of the Moabites were supposed to be forever excluded from the assembly, what about King David? He was only three generations away from Ruth. He had Moabite blood flowing through his veins. How can such people be a part of the assembly of the Lord? 
Well, the answer, I think, is found in the very words of the prophecy that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Do you think think it was an accident that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading a specific portion of Isaiah which describes the humiliation and the childlessness of the servant of the Lord? Just imagine, just imagine what it must have been like to be the Ethiopian eunuch, this emasculated man, to read these words. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was cut off for the transgression of my people. Friends, this is how we are accepted and welcomed in. The only begotten Son of God, who is at the Father's right hand from all eternity, was crushed like a humiliated and childless Man, he was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off in the prime of his life without any biological offspring. He was treated like a bastard in order that we could be treated like sons and come to be enrolled in what Hebrews calls the assembly of the firstborn. See, this is why we're acceptable in God's sight. Nothing else is sufficient to make us acceptable. Nothing. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you've maimed your own body in service to idols. Do you think that kind of thing is still going on today? It is. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter who you're related to. For by a single offering, listen to this language, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He makes his people holy by his once for all sacrifice and leads his people in the midst of the assembly. The righteous servant of the Lord makes the many to be accounted righteous, says Isaiah 53. And we think about this, it's, it's got to lead us to say, what glory, hallelujah, the standard of perfection has been met. It hasn't changed, it hasn't been ignored or overlooked or swept under the rug, it has been met by the Son of God who lived and died for us. And so there's, there's this wonderful transition that we find after the sacrifice of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Although the suffering servant is described as a humiliated and childless man, a man marred beyond human semblance, in verse 10, we read that because of his sacrifice, he shall see his offspring. And I'm looking at some of them right now. Isn't it it amazing? Isaiah 53 is is followed a few chapters later by an astonishing word that is specifically addressed, listen to this, to foreign outcasts and eunuchs. In Isaiah 56, we read, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, 
The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is what Jesus died to do. He he died to gather the foreigners and outcasts of Israel and give them an even better name than sons and daughters. He died to sanctify his people through his own blood. You see, and because Jesus died, and and even though he was a single man who, who never married, he has innumerable offspring with many more still yet to be gathered in. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, think about the implication of this for us. Many of us in this room, Gentiles, strangers to the covenants of promise, we, we have, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, and through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. And so Paul says, so we are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. This is, this is incredible news. And this blessing of being brought near, belonging to the assembly of the Lord, is only ours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's apart from works, apart from anything we do, because Jesus is the only one who meets God's standard of perfect obedience, of perfection. And because Jesus cleanses us by his blood, there is absolutely nothing else that you need to do in order to be accepted and welcomed in. Because by his once for all sacrifice, we are made pure in God's sight. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you know this in your heart? That in Jesus Christ, you are well pleasing in the Father's sight. He loves what he sees. He sees perfection. Because he sees you in his son. And this brings us to the second section that I want us to think about for just a few minutes. The camp of Israel. Verses 9 through 14 continue this unrelenting requirement for holiness. Not only when God's people are gathered for worship within the assembly of the Lord. But also in war camp. When Israel goes out to fight, holiness is required. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Verse 9 says, When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. In other words, God's people were to recognize that certain things were simply off limits because they were a holy camp dwelling in an unholy world. This same kind of command 
to keep ourselves from evil is, is given to us throughout the, the New Testament. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council instructs churches to keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, and from sexual immorality. In 1 Timothy, Paul urges uh, uh, young Timothy to keep himself pure. John urges Christians to keep themselves from idols. See, a fundamental part of maintaining the sanctity of the entire community is by keeping ourselves from evil things. By abstaining. By saying no. By avoiding. By not participating. Now, there's certainly more to holiness than the avoidance of evil, but not less. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. And the rationale for keeping ourselves from evil is given in verse 14. It says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that you may not see anything indecent, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Because God is with you to deliver you and give you victory. Do you see, the, the reality of God's presence among his people is still a vital, fundamental motivation to abstain from evil. Because, actually it's, it's intensified under the new covenant, because the church and individual Christians are God's temple right when when the church gathers for times such as this god takes up his dwelling in the midst of his people individual christians paul says the spirit of god lives within you so think about how paul applies this reality to the christian life in first corinthians 6 when he has to urge christians living in uh, corinth to not unite themselves to temple prostitutes because it was such a common and widespread practice. How does Paul reason? He says, because you are united to Jesus and the spirit of God lives within you so that whatever you do, you do in union with Jesus and the spirit of God dwelling in you. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Uh, in verses 10 and 11, the law extends these rules to bathing procedures when a soldier becomes unclean and leaving very little to the imagination in verses 12 and 13. Moses requires military latrines to be dug outside the war camp, saying, you shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it. That language, outside the camp, is very important in the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole. It is a place of refuse. It is the place where uh, the skin and leftovers of sacrificial animals was, was burned. It was, it was where trash was piled up and latrines were, were dug. Right? And another thing we need to keep in mind is that human excrement 
which is sometimes watered down in our English translations. But human excrement is often used to represent the filth of human sin. And so with that in mind, ask the question, where did Jesus go in order to sanctify us through his blood? Do you know the words of Hebrews? Hebrews 13, 12, Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. As the true sacrifice, Jesus suffered and died in a despised location where sacrificial animals were burned up, where trash was piled up, where latrines were dug. He went to a place of absolute impurity in order to make us pure. See, in his incarnation, life, death, Jesus left heaven above and was identified with the very excrement of our sinful human existence. Though he is of pure eyes, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews goes on to say, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Follow Jesus by going outside the camp, bearing the reproach that he bore. This is, this is one of the ways that Christians are called to pursue holiness, by going outside the camp. Understanding that being committed to holiness is not going to make you look cool. It's actually at times going to mean bearing the reproach of friends and even family or neighbors or co-workers. But the sad fact is that Christians are sometimes, sometimes embarrassed to identify with Jesus. Sometimes we're embarrassed to be associated with Christ because of the many ways that Christianity is scorned in our secular society. Sometimes we're embarrassed to be associated with difficult portions of God's word when it speaks about sensitive subjects like human sexuality last week or strange topics like crushed testicles or nocturnal emissions and human feces. Sometimes we're embarrassed of Christ himself or embarrassed by the scandal of the cross which tells us that it was necessary for the Son of God to be crushed and to be cut off so that we could be healed and made whole and welcomed in. You see, in response to all such temptation to avoid identification with Christ, Hebrews exhorts us to not be ashamed of him who was so utterly humiliated for us and for our salvation. The pursuit of holiness in God's camp means we must be willing to go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he bore. 
he endured. But you see, we can, we can do this, we can do this knowing that nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own by works of the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. We can do this knowing that one day in the Lord's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So let us go outside the camp to him and bear the reproach that he bore. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving your son to suffer and be humiliated for us. He identified with the worst of our existence so that we could be lifted up to glory, so that we could be brought to a better place of worship, so that we could come to that festal gathering with innumerable angels, that we could come to the living God, that we could come to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, be admitted into the role of the assembly of the firstborn. And we thank you that through him, we can enjoy all of the rights and privileges of sonship. And we pray this morning that for any of us here who have not put our faith in your crucified and risen son, that today would be the day of salvation, that we would know your acceptance and the joy of belonging in the assembly of uh, the Lord. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.